One of the biggest winter storms to strike the Northwest arrived 107 years ago and nearly destroyed one of Seattle's earliest landmarks. A resident historian, Felix Spinell, looks back at one specific piece of damage done by the big snow of 1916. Yeah, there was already a lot of snow that January, and then nearly two feet fell between February 1st and February 2nd, and this was all over western Washington. And sometime during the day on February 2nd of that year, the temperature was around 32, and a mix of rain and snow began to fall. And that snow doesn't melt right away. It absorbs the rain and gets very heavy. Now, one of the places where that heavy, wet snow really took a toll was at St. James Cathedral on First Hill in Seattle. It was a landmark that dominated the skyline in the days before the Smith Tower. And when the cathedral debuted in December 1907, along with its distinctive matching towers, it also had a dome which did not survive the big snow of 1916. So a few weeks ago, I took a little history tour to an area where the public is generally not allowed. My guide was Corinna Laughlin, pastoral assistant for liturgy at St. James Cathedral. So we're in the attic of St. James Cathedral, and the whole area that you can see with all of these wires and wooden walkways was put in in 1994. And it's a, a space between the ceiling of the cathedral and the roof. And it's a place where you can really get a sense of where the dome was and how it's been rebuilt over the years. So uh, let's come up the stairs here. The space was created by remodeling the cathedral 30 years ago, but it also was really close to where the dome used to be. Now, the dome was about 45 feet in diameter, topped out about 110 feet above the ground. In the old photos that I've seen, it looks not unlike the dome at Holy Names Academy on Capitol Hill. But back to what happened on February 2nd, 1916. This is Corinna Laughlin. The snow piled up around the base of the dome. Um, they say it snowed continuously for something like 27 hours that year. And just the sheer weight of all that wet snow brought the dome crashing to the floor of the cathedral February 2nd, 1916. So February 2nd is a big feast day in the church. It was called the Purification back in 1916. Now we call it the Presentation of the Lord. And it's traditionally the day for the blessing of candles. But fortunately, Seattle shut down in 1916, just like it does now when it snows. And so nobody was in the cathedral, so nobody was injured. But the cathedral suffered serious damage because the collapse of the dome took a lot of the ceiling with it. So basically, the building had to be closed for more than a year and essentially rebuilt. You know, and you heard the best news of all there. The cathedral is empty. Nobody was hurt right. or killed when the dome collapsed after. And that's just amazing. As to why it happened, there were at least a few contributing factors. I talked with Jeff Berman, a professor in civil engineering over at the UW. He said steel manufacturing wasn't quite perfected yet in 1907. Some of the engineering reports mention a failed steel truss that was found in the rubble. Those reports also mention a possible disconnect between the New York blueprints from the famous architectural firm of Heinz and Lafarge, who designed the cathedral, and the local construction crews who built it. But Professor Berman says the main culprit was all that snow. They actually weighed the snow after the collapse and concluded that it was very heavy snow because it was saturated with rain, <laughs> which makes a lot of sense, right? You know, if you're if you're a skier, you know this quite well, right? Uh, cascade concrete, right? Yeah, and there's actually a term used to describe snow made heavy by absorbing rain. It's called the rain-on-snow surcharge. <laughs> and in 1916, the snow on the roof around the dome weighed something like 28 to 35 pounds per cubic foot for a total estimated load of 30 tons and apparently made quite a sound when it all let go nobody actually saw it they heard it though now on my tour i also got to see parts of the old 1907 ceiling that had been hidden since right after the dome collapse and the pyramid-shaped skylight that was built in 1994 in the exact spot where the dome used to be you can see the um 
simple painting that is supposed to evoke coffering. It's supposed to look like coffering from the ground. Oh, wow. But you can also see how much higher up this is than where the ceiling is now. Yeah. So this is from 1907. Um, and the dome um, was about a little bit bigger than the skylight is now. The opening is now. The, uh, the oculus, as we call it. But the whole ceiling was much higher. And so this is kind of an interesting place to see a little bit of what the decoration looked like inside the cathedral. It was really cool to see that old ceiling decoration hidden behind the, the ceiling now. It was very cool. Now, we also bumped into Father Michael Ryan, the pastor of St. James Cathedral. He told me a story about his 1916 predecessor, Pastor Monsignor William Noonan. Pastor Noonan had a certain sensitivity, and he tried to control the, shall we say, messaging in the wake of the collapse. I think he must have been aware that when St. James was built, some of the people in the city would have thought it was an overreach. There weren't many Catholics here, and they built this largest church in the city and crowning the hill with it, and then eight years later it collapses on itself. So uh, his first thought was, how is this going to play out in the public? So, And it's well attested. He had the editor of the Catholic newspaper next to him, Bill O'Connell. He said, Willem, not a word to the press. And, uh, of course, the Seattle had three dailies in those days, the PI, the Times, and the Star, and it was the front page of every one of them. <laughs> yeah. It's early days of uh, photojournalism, but there's some amazing photographs, particularly captured by the PI photographers, of looking down from the top of the roof into the, the rubble below. They planned to build an even bigger dome to replace it, but they couldn't really gin up enthusiasm for that. Yeah. And so eventually they decided to just build a roof, and it took about a year, and the cathedral reopened in March 1917. But quite a lot of damage there that happened on that date. Yeah. I hosted the 100th anniversary I don't know if you call it a celebration, but uh, commemoration of, oh, wow. uh, of what happened. And uh, it was it was uh, quite a show, actually. They read the uh, we read the headlines of the, <laughs> of the newspapers and then the organ played a musical simulation of what it sounded like when oh, the dome wow. crashed. And, of course, That's you know, they have cool. two organs in that church, one in the front, one in the back. And when you open up all those pipes, it does indeed sound <laughs> and almost feel uh, like an earthquake. But I'm, uh, I'm a little envious because you got to go in the... I've never been in the attic, and oh, I've boy. never been in the bell towers either. Usually, oh, I got, I, I, yeah, first I thing I do when I towers. see an old church is one is, you know, try to climb to the bell towers. But God, that would be cool. Yeah, the attic is amazing. Seeing that rub close, that, that where the ceiling is still kind of damaged from 19, 1916 yeah. really just blew me away. They have a sprinkler system up there now, I understand, after Notre Dame. They do. Yeah. yeah. Felix Bunnell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thank you, Felix. Have a good day. Thanks, Davey. 647 Seattle's Morning News. Seattle's iconic North Lake Tavern and Pizza House has closed after nearly 70 years. There's a new pizza parlor planning to open up at the site, but fans say this is the end of an era. Cairo News Radio's Heather Bosch has the story. People have been coming to this U District hangout for decades. Since the late 60s. <laughs> it's probably been 40 years ago. My family started coming here um, probably during the 70s, I'm guessing, and then it's been sort of a family tradition since then. That's a lot of memories of family, friends, romance. Well, this is my wife's favorite place for our date night. And pizza. They've had some of the best pizza I've had in my life personally. Apparently very good pizza. I mean, first of all, the absurd amount of toppings that they put on pizza. The, the crust is, is unique. I mean, right? It's 
it's it's totally different. You can't get it really anywhere else. We think it's very good, or we wouldn't stand in line. <laughs> the line was out the door on this restaurant's last day. After nearly 70 years, it was closing down. Its third owner retiring. His assistant, Jessica Scott, heartened to see the turnout. It's, it's really impressive. The new owner is a small Seattle-based pizza chain. They don't plan big changes to the building. They're going to do like a mini facelift. I think that's one of the greatest things is they want people to come here and still have the North Lake feel. As for the food, well... Yeah, it's, it's going to be different. It's going to be New York style. Some patrons may try out the new place. Others, maybe not. There's a lot of great pizza in Seattle. We were here for what it was, and I'm, I don't think it'll be that anymore, but that's okay. We'll get the memories. Heather Bosch, Cairo News Radio. <laughs> that's great. Your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. It started as a way to survive the pandemic, but turned into a booming business for a Memphis barber. He's created a safe space for haircuts and a little conversation turned therapy. CBS affiliate WREG has the story. For Barbara Terrence Summers, it's about the conversations that happen when clients sit in his chair. Clients have turned into family. You just chill, hang out, get to be yourself. It's, it's just wonderful, wonderful experience for the client to be able to be comfortable when they come in. For 20 years, Summers has serviced hundreds, forming real relationships. Being in the barbershop is like very therapeutic. And, you know, when you're the barber, you're the counselor, you're the, you're everything to your client. Now for his clients, he's not just standing behind the chair, but getting behind the wheel. You book your appointment and wherever you are at work, your job, we come to you. 901 Barber Concierge started during the pandemic and has been thriving ever since. During the pandemic, you know, of course, you know, barbershops and hair salons, they weren't considered essential. So they shut us down, and my clients were still calling. Now when they call, this van pulls up. The brainchild of Michael Jefferson. I just started driving to him, and one thing led to another. I got tired of going in and out of their houses with all my stuff, lugging it in and out, until I just said, you know what, I'm just going to get a van, and I'm going to create an idea, and, and hey, I did it. Creating a safe space for many with the same open conversation, but less ears. Mental health is big in our community, especially for black men, and now guys are recognizing more that we can lean on each other, and that's what I love about being a barber, being able to be comfortable and have guys come in and relate to us. We share stories. Sharing stories, spreading love, with shears on the side. We need more love, and we need to care for one another more so than anything, especially in these times. Oh, kind of a theme going here, caring yes. for one another. Yeah, how about that? 748, and now, from the G and Ursula Show, which starts at 9, here's G. Scott. <laughs> so, it was one year ago today that Tom Brady announced his retirement, then he unretired. Yeah. And it was two hours ago today that he announced his retirement for good. I know the process uh, was a pretty big deal last time, so when I woke up this morning, I figured I'd just press record and let you guys know first. And I'm told that you looked into his eyes, I mean, through the video, mm-hmm. and you saw something. Yeah, I saw, what did you see? I saw um, a very emotional Tom Brady. I saw someone who is quitting and retiring from something on his own accord, of course. He's leaving. You leave the game of football one of two ways. Most of you get told bye-bye. 
the a small percentage of you, like Tom Brady, say, hmm, I don't leave because I want to. Sounds like radio. Right. Yeah, it does sound like radio. I can relate to Tom Brady. Isn't that weird? And so, and so it's about that's about 5%. The rest of the 95%, bye-bye. So in Tom Brady, what you guys are seeing and hearing, you're hearing emotion. You're hearing someone who is leaving something that they have been a part of. What's Tom Brady, like 45, 46 years old? You know what I mean? This dude has been doing this since he was seven, eight, nine years old. Who you are for your entire life has been centered around football. He has been Tom Brady for years. That message you saw him do, he just basically is now he was Superman. Now he becomes Clark Kent. And he says, you know what? I'm just Tom now. Hmm. And one of the things that I would really love for the NFL to do, and if they want to really help with mental health in this country, is to really bring to the forefront what happens to a lot of these former NFL players when they leave the game. I'm telling you, in the 20 years that I have been around an NFL team, there is so much mental health issues mm-hmm. that these guys deal with. Not going to the locker room anymore. It, it, again, let me just say this. Who and what they are has been centered around one game for years. Everything. Eight years old. Little Tommy, you're good. Nine years old. Oh, you're good. Oh, you're so good. High school, you're so good. College, you're so good. Pro, you're so good. And then, bam, it's over. But Tom Brady's going to be famous forever. And he's got right. a wife and he's got kids. Doesn't he have hobbies? I mean, mm-hmm. with all the money and resources that some of these football mm-hmm. players have, mm-hmm. how have they not diversified their interests so that when they do leave the game, mm-hmm. they can still be a whole person? None. Here's what I've learned. None of the money, none of the fame, none of all of that compares to them being in the locker room sure. with their team, being a part of something. Mm. So let's put this in layman's terms. Let's take away from football. Let's talk about us as people. Sometimes some of the most important things in our lives is when we are a part of something. Yeah, money and yeah, being able to pay your bills, those things are important. But being a part of that bowling league, being a part of that uh, girls group that goes and hangs out and has mimosas for brunch. By the way, I always like it when Lillian goes to brunch, especially afterwards. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> anyways, everybody wants to be part of something. Sure. And so when Tom Brady is leaving, he's like... <sighs> I wish I could keep doing this forever because a lot of those guys do. Can't he coach? Can't he yeah, like be coach, part of start a team? A foundation, and, you know, yeah. help younger people. I mean, you could do a lot of them try to do all of those things, but the one thing that they miss, the common denominator is missing being a part of that locker room, being with the guys every single day. You're 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 working towards something. Could he work for the team as an assistant coach, or at least be the guy who gives the pep talk before the game? You know yeah. what happens? You know what happens when they work for the team? What? They're upstairs. upstairs. They're not downstairs. Yeah. There's a there's a difference when it comes to upstairs and downstairs. You feel me? Could he coach? Huh? Have, have any successful quarterbacks ever come back to coach their own team no, I mean, to you, a Super Bowl? Not the greats, not the Montanas, not the Dan Marinos. You know so what I mean? Just because you're a good quarterback yeah, doesn't yeah. mean you can be a good. Not even John Elway. He was just uh, he was upstairs. You know what I'm saying? Example: Dave Ross. I need you to admit this. Is right. there a difference here at Cairo Radio? Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between downstairs and upstairs? Well, just for the fact I don't even know who works upstairs. <laughs> 
So there you go. <laughs> so the same could be said about corporate America. The same could be said about NFL teams. It's the same thing. Well, I hope he lands on his feet, yeah. softly on a bed of 100s. Yeah, I mean, they, they, <laughs> on only 100s? And then, well, and I then don't know. Do they make them higher than that? Now here's I a, wouldn't know. Now, here's a question. <laughs> Colleen, yeah. you're the expert on this. Am I? Yeah. Does Tom Brady and Giselle get back together? Mm. No. No? It's over? That's too bad. Mm, I didn't expect that question. You know no. what I'm saying? I think she's done and she doesn't need him. She doesn't oh, need him. She doesn't you need know, him. You know how much easier it is when you don't have to worry about that that ex? <laughs> oh. She's just got her kids to worry about, her own career. She's mm. got her own money. She so, doesn't need Tom. So, so when Tom Brady was in the game, when he was he married. When he chose football over her, red flag, my lady. Run. Oh, wow. Gia Nursla, 9 o'clock on Cairo Radio. Thanks, mm. Gia. The EPA is taking a big step to protect Bristol Bay, most productive wild salmon ecosystem in the world. Not to mention the most valuable as well. Bristol Bay is along the southwest coast of Alaska. It's an incredibly important habitat for salmon and the world's most crowded sockeye spot. And it's important to our state, providing an estimated 5,000 fishing jobs. It's why the EPA is blocking the company's intent to run a copper and gold mine there, citing potential Clean Water Act violations. Violations. Washington Democratic U.S. Senator Maria Cantwell supports the EPA's move. No company will ever be able to stick a mine on top of some of the best salmon habitat in the world. She says the bay is too important to potentially pollute. Fishermen know that the Pacific Northwest salmon is worth more than copper. And today, salmon is even worth more than gold. The company pursuing the mine, Pebble Limited Partnership, says the EPA's ruling breaks the law and the company will likely continue the legal fight. The mine would have been the biggest open pit mines ever in North America, situated directly upstream from Bristol Bay. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. Last year, I saw a preview of a film called Freedom's Path about the Underground Railroad. It was written and directed by Brett Smith, and uh, because of the pandemic, it was it couldn't go into release. Uh, finally, though, uh, you've gotten it released. So, first of all, congratulations! Thank you so much. And um, before we talk about the film itself, uh, I, I don't often get to meet people who are crazy enough to put together an independent film like this. And I, I'm just curious to know why you decided that the the Underground Railroad, uh, you know, needed a new film about it and, and why you decided that you would be the one to do it. Oh, man, what a question. Um, so it's actually a film I've been working on for 13 years. 13 so it wasn't years. something that kind of came out of nowhere. Um, for me, any story that I tell, because of the time it takes to put an independent film together, there's so many elements that go into it, and it has to be a passion project, something that, like, moves and compels me. There's so many elements about this film that were, I felt, about this era that had been unexplored, right? One of the key elements for for this is that this is actually the first narrative film that centers around free African-Americans living in the South during this time. So a lot of people don't know, or at least I didn't know, at the time of the Civil War, there were 250,000 free African-Americans living in the South, which Mm -hmm. is actually more than in the North. And we've never seen a story centered around them. And so this story isn't about Harriet Tubman that who comes down down from the north into the south and goes back. This is about people who live in the south helping to operate and run a portion of that Underground Railroad to get people north. So it's, it's really 
to me, it's a very profound and powerful film about our, our American heritage and these individuals that did so much. Well, talk about talk about these these free black people in the South. How did how, how did they become free? Because they were all brought here as, as slaves. And was there a, a constant effort to hunt them down and return them to slavery? There are multiple ways that the individuals became free at this time. They they could purchase their own freedom through hiring out, working significant significant extra time over long periods of time. Sometimes people uh, pe- people who were the enslavers would pass away, and in their in their wills, they would be actually. Uh, mandated that, that their upon their death people would be set mm-hmm. free, and then many ran away. Many ran away and, and declared themselves free and lived lived whether they made it all the way north into the into the north of the United States or up into Canada. Some stayed in the south in the south there amongst the communities that they knew, and so yeah, it's a it's a very uh, it's a very interesting. It was it was mind blowing to me that we had not we had not seen a story that really really uh, pays tribute to these individuals uh, and the lives that they lived. You see chains on me? Or a mess around here barking orders? I ain't been no slave since I ran out that plantation. I'm still curious as to how you would prove that you had been, quote, lawfully freed. Could you could you just display a document? And, you know, if, if uh, somebody comes hunting for you and you know, sends the dogs and, you know, they've got you at gunpoint and you pull out a document saying, oh, by the way, I bought my freedom and they'd believe it. Well, in many instances, that was the case that you did have to have documentation on you when people when enslaved people would go anywhere. They had to have documentation yeah. from the plantation that which from which they were coming from. So oftentimes that was honored. But I'm certain that there are many times in history that. That probably wasn't honored by certain individuals. Uh, so yeah, it definitely, it's definitely a very brackish area in time, right? With this living in such, you know, significant circumstances as, as American, you know, the American South in the 19th century. You got to find yourself, boy. Find yourself. That's why we're gonna win this war. We got calls to. Now, you wanted to tell an upbeat story, as I understand it, right? You didn't want something that's going to leave you depressed. This, there are portions of the film where I, you know, I broke down and cried. But the overall theme is upbeat. So explain that. Absolutely, yeah. So for me, I feel like we've seen so – this era – We've seen so many films that that live in the shadows, and and in many ways, rightfully so. You need to properly tell the stories of individuals who lived at that time. But at the same time, I felt with this story, I wanted to be able to go into the shadows but not live there. And for me, this is a story about about individuals learning to see past preconceived notions, learning to see past you know these quote unquote race, and learn to see people for the unique individuals that they are. And so, really, it is a story of bonding, of friendship, of brotherhood, of family, and uh, people from two worlds apart really learning to to see each other for who they actually are. And and it, and it takes a little bit to get past that, but I think mm-hmm. to me that is a very powerful and a universal message that people from all walks of life can relate to and, and respond to, hopefully in a positive way. And in the story, a white Union soldier befriends a freed. Black man. Yeah, I'd even say, you know, cautiously befriends, right? It was it was actually, so this young man runs off to go be this war hero, wants to join the Union, go do something great, kind of because everyone else is doing it. And he gets to war realizing it's nothing like he imagined it to be. Yeah. And he ends up deserting. And he needs he needs help and rescue. And that rescue comes by way of these freed black men looking to join up with the Union at this time. It's really by happenstance. And they begrudgingly in some ways, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing. But they, you know, really kind of 
over time in a very natural way learn to see each other for mm-hmm. as, as friends. Yeah. Now, this is fiction, right? Correct, yeah. What did you draw from? What did you draw from to, to write these characters who are, who are completely believable, but I have to keep telling myself, okay, this didn't really happen, but you're... You're telling the story to make a point. So everything, so for everything for me, it's interesting. I pulled from a lot of different things. Um, everything for me has to be grounded in historical reality. So mm-hmm. everything that you see is not only plausible, but many elements of it likely did happen. And so one of the one of the key things for really wanting to understand this era is there's something called the Federal Writers Project uh, the, that you can find at the Library of Congress. Right. It's the most amazing thing ever where basically in the 1930s, 40s, the government sent down, I think, roughly about 500 individuals to go interview the last living generation of formerly enslaved people, people who lived under slavery, not when they were two years old or three years, three years old, but these individuals were, you know, at the time of the end of the Civil War, 20, 30 years old. And so at the time of the interview, some of these individuals are as old as 107 years old. And what's amazing about this is that when these interviewers went down, they actually, when they recorded it, they recorded everything frenetically. They didn't, they didn't go in and try and edit things, uh, mm-hmm. you know, into quote, quote unquote proper, you know, grammatical English. And so when you're reading it, you really get a sense of these individuals. And I really immersed myself in that for, for weeks on weeks to just really get a sense of, stories that no one's heard of and get a sense of of everyday people because that to me was such an important thing about this film this is based on the stories of people who actually lived through this well loosely yeah very very loosely there are many elements there are many elements in the story that i wanted to incorporate into these characters of events that actually did happen and so it was wanting to weave this 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 narrative and tell a story of people that did exist and represent them in the most in the best way i possibly could Brett Smith, the writer and director of Freedom's Path. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, Dave. Seattle's Morning News, 847. And when last we talked with Cairo News Radio Traffic Specialist Mickey Gomez, we were talking about the diabetes drug turned weight loss drug Ozempic. When Mickey was heard to remark... And uh, now they're saying Ozempic face, which I can come back and we can talk about Ozempic Ozempic face. face? Ozempic face. What? Ozempic face. It's okay. where it, it was. No, no, let's do yeah, part okay. two tomorrow. Part two tomorrow. And tomorrow has arrived. And uh, here's our Ozempic face. Yes. So, <laughs> Don't call yeah. oh, her Wait, did you face? just call me Ozempic face? <laughs> Wow. Dave, I'm about to throw hands. You mean right. the face of Ozempic. The face of Ozempic. Well, what does Ozempic face mean? Okay, so basically, to give you the story behind it, uh, Dr. Paul Gerard Frank, he's a cosmetic uh, dermatologist. He's worked with celebrities, and he coined the term Ozempic face. Mm-hmm. After many of his middle-aged patients would come in with very gaunt faces after losing a lot of body weight in a very short period of time uh, because they lost weight mm. on Ozempic. So Ozempic face basically means that you're, you know, you've lost the elasticity in your face. Mm-hmm. The jowls are sagging. So it's not, it's right not a here. good thing then. I mean, it can be. I don't <laughs> think it's a big deal. It, it really frustrates me. And I wish I could say, you know, how how I really feel on the air, but I can't. What Whenever do you mean? I hear, what do you, oh, when you hear angering. that? It's uh, yeah. very, It's very frustrating. It's derogatory First, is what it is. It is. Yeah. I, I, I find yeah. it to be very derogatory. And now that women like myself and men included are losing weight rapidly, I take Manjaro. I've made, it's no secret, I've uh, lost nearly 50 pounds in four months. Uh, I know I'm going to have to take this medication for a very long time because I have a metabolic disorder. I can't Mm -hmm. lose the weight without help. And so to see this, now I'm looking in the mirror. Mm -hmm. You know, know, every every week I'm losing, you know, two to five pounds. And now it's true. 
ozempic face really does exist you lose a lot of weight in a quick amount of time the fatness and fullness of my face is starting to dwindle away i see the sagging jowls really you look fine to me well thank you well, I'm it's not. Very just, nice. I'm not making it up, but I mean, don't don't you worry that because this phrase is out there that you may be buying into it? it? Yeah, yeah. Just looking looking at what is the normal evolution of the human face. Mine's not the same as it was, you know, twenty years ago. What? You have a beard and, and, and a mustache. And they, you can hide it, though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Maybe that's the reason I grow it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what I'm saying I'll is, grow one too. You, yeah, you know, we can do that. <laughs> Just a little tweak here to the hormones. We'll just off like a rocket. Yeah, but, but wait, so you, you don't think that you're layering, uh, you're, you're exaggerating the change in your face because this this concept exists? Yes, I am. Oh. I yeah. am. Yeah. And, and if I'm doing it, I know other women are doing it yeah. as well. But I'm smart enough, and not that they aren't smart enough, but I am in love with myself enough to know that this doctor's opinion and everyone else who's written an opinion about Ozempic face shouldn't matter. Although behind the scenes, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm going, yeah, I see the sagging. You want to feel like you. I I can relate only in that I started graying that, you know, I'm in my late thirties and I'm already, you know, salt and pepper. If I didn't dye my hair, I let one little streak show. That's my, you know, defiance because I think women can be silver foxes too. But I remember talking with my therapist about this and the gray hair and everything. Oh, you're so brave to grow it out. They call you brave when you grow out your grow hairs when you're gray hairs when you're a woman. And I went, but I feel like a brunette. It was way too much emotional energy to accept the gray mm-hmm. rather than just diet and be a brunette. That's who I am. So you do whatever you want to your face, Mickey, right. and anybody else out there. Like if you want to get fillers because it feels more like you when you look in the mirror, do it. That's not vain. It's self love. It is self love, but however, it's damaging. I think it can be damaging. Oh, of I course. mean, because and expensive. Uh, there because now it's trending on TikTok. It's trending on Instagram. It's trending everywhere now. Ozempic face. I'm getting targeted by ads. I saw an this morning as I was getting ready for work and it said the dangers of Ozempic and I'm thinking oh my gosh what what now and <laughs> yeah. I click on it and it's Ozempic can't face. I and just I'm lose like, weight in peace so not only in my mentality is wait the media and I know we are the media but I'm thinking pop culture media says you know you're not attractive because you are obese you're overweight it's mm. not pretty okay fine call I, I've been called the, the the ugly shaming names right mm-hmm. but now we're getting skinny we're getting healthy and we're still ugly yeah Ozempic you know? face <laughs> we yeah. got Ozempic face Good for you for standing up so I think that you know articles like this and, and fishing and th- those targeted ads that say ooh Ozempic face do you have it how do you know you know just leave us alone yeah <laughs> Yeah, let us we lose just, weight in peace. But anyway, but an important message thing. though. I want to I want to go back because if anybody missed part one, I think you have such an important message mm-hmm. about weight loss that uh, you know a lot of people want to. Well, just uh, you know, eat right and exercise. And and for you, it's a, a what metabolic disorder? I am a type two diabetic. I have a metabolic disorder. There are My, body types. There right. are different like whoever you are. That that's the message I want people to hear from mm-hmm. you is that. Just because people tell you this is how you should lose weight does not mean that's how you can lose weight. That's right. So this, like, you're giving a lot of people hope. I, I am. And just so you know, I, I was, you know, um, I used to be a marathoner. I was a triathlete. I would burn 3,500 calories a workout. Mm-hmm. I would eat 3,000 calories a day. I've, I've, you know, and then something happened. My, my, my body just changed hormonally. It mm-hmm. changed. The weight grew it, it, and it grew quite quickly, too. I mean, mm-hmm. in a year, I gained 100 pounds mm. and I couldn't lose it. So, Ozempic face. Yes, thank you. Okay.
So are we past this now? Are, are you? Do I feel better? Do you feel better? Are you cured <laughs> of it? Do you, do you understand that you know, people will do anything to make money, and if it takes, you know, calling out Ozempic Face to sell stuff. They'll well, that's why it. they're doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why they're doing it. And I'm looking in the mirror. And I was just talking to Colleen yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, I, th- I see a little line and I see my jowl sagging. I'm, and I was do, like, do you I got don't a gal? see it. I don't see it. No. Yeah. And then you told me. Well, I have yeah, a gal. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> if you want some Botox, get some Botox. Do what makes <laughs> you happy. And I'm standing here at the age of 70 looking at these, what, 30-somethings? What are you now? I'm going to be, be 51 this oh, month. 51. Okay. Well, still, 51 <laughs> sounds plenty young to me. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.